0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute.
1: Thanks for joining me today for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. When I was a child, family vacations involved going to historical sites. We lived in New York, so we would go to New England, we'd go to Pennsylvania, we'd go to D.C., we'd go to Virginia. And although my brother and sisters and I would rather have spent time in the motel pool, my parents made sure that we went through the history that was available to us in museums, national parks, etc. And I came away from those experiences, having an appreciation for American history that was then supported when I went to school. Well, my guest today is Bill Potter, and we'll be discussing the question, are national parks enforcing a singular worldview on park visitors? Now, just so you know that he's qualified to talk on this perspective, Bill Potter is an experienced historian who combines a lifelong study of American history with an uncommon ability to captivate audiences of all ages as he traces the providential acts of God throughout the ages. He has taught history in high schools and colleges. He's led many tours of American and European historical sites and brings to each event a wealth of experience and knowledge. As an experienced researcher and writer, he possesses a practical knowledge of antiquarian books, documents, and artifacts, and has published several short books and has penned many articles and book reviews for publication. He's earned a well-deserved reputation as a man gifted in communicating the story of God's providential hand in American history. He's the father of eight and appreciates the necessity of passing on to succeeding generations the richness of both our regional and national history. He and his wife, Leslie, live in Virginia. So Bill, thanks for joining me today.
0: Well, thank you, Andrea. It's a privilege.
1: So before we delve into the narrative being imposed by the National Park Service, please give my listeners a rundown of some of the circumstances which led you to originally write your essay for Faith for All of Life, our Chalcedon publication, describing your experience in leading tours in various national parks.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm the chief historian for a uh, history tour company. Uh, the name of our uh, company is Landmark Events, and it's uh, landmarkevents.org if you'd like to see what we do and uh, follow some of the links to our tours. Uh, but I teach from a uh, what professional historians Typically, call a providential uh, interpretation of American history s- similar to the, the way the Puritans viewed the world, uh, and we we teach from a thoroughly Christian worldview, and we go to the places where history happened, and so we uh, we had, we visit a lot of national parks, uh, we visit a lot of battlefields, we visit um, uh, historic homes and monuments and. Uh, All the places of, say, Washington DC and Philadelphia and Boston, um, places like such as that. And then Scotland and Ireland and um, England, we travel pretty far afield and we uh, try to view history from a biblical worldview perspective. And uh, thus I have come in contact with uh, all sorts of historical sites, in particular National Park Service sites. Um, National Park Service owns 400 and uh, I think it's 420, 424 national parks. Wow. Uh, and it, they, they own 84 million acres. <laughs> and so, um, although we go to a lot of battlefields and, and other historic sites like that, we also, um, do a rafting trip down the Colorado River, uh, through the Grand Canyon to a couple rafting trips and so we we get to see some of the the natural sites in South Dakota. We go to um the custer National park and uh places places where there's lots of acreage and hiking territory and that sort of thing.
1: Do families normally constitute the bulk of um the people who participate? Is this usually a family kind of thing or just individuals
0: yes we're uh we're actually really oriented uh to family uh Especially homeschool families. I would say they probably make up 90 to 95% of our, our clientele. And we're, we're set up to handle lap babies to great grandparents. And sometimes we get that whole spectrum in one family. Um, and our tours typically are less than 50 people. 50 is usually, uh, typically our cutoff. And some of them are just two day tours uh, some of them. Last two weeks, um, it just depends on what it is, but yes they we're geared to families we do get lots of individuals too um, and sets of grandparents and all sorts of people but uh, we're, we're kind of geared to families and teaching children as well as
1: adults I see so tell um, my listeners a little bit about some of the experiences that you ran into that prompted the Essay that you wrote for us in 2016. Well, we had had uh,
0: a few over the years. Um, say over the last uh, 20 years, we had a we've had a few run-ins at various historical sites um, with uh, interpreters that want to be able to tell the story because they they really don't approve of so-called narratives. That outsiders bring to their historical sites. And in 15, uh, we ran into, uh, we ran into a buzzsaw at a national battlefield. Uh, we didn't realize it at the time, but, uh, we were on a tour that we do almost every year. And that, that's uh, the New Orleans area. And we always go to the Chalmette battlefield and that's where. The Battle of New Orleans took place um, with uh, Andrew Jackson, General Andrew Jackson, who assembled an army to try and thwart the British attempt to capture New Orleans toward the end of the War of 1812. And the battlefield at Chalmette is uh, lovely. It's it's well preserved. They've got, I think, most of the battlefield uh, preserved there. They have a nice visitor center. And we've been going there for a number of years. In 2015, we had our, our normal tour there. And about a month later, as we were preparing to actually go do uh, our annual tour in Scotland, we got a package in the mail from the National Park Service, which said that we have been uh, indicted for illegal guiding. Illegal
1: and, guiding is what they said?
0: Yes. Wow, And we'd never heard of that. Uh, We didn't know what that was. It kind of sounded like a violation of our First Amendment rights, but uh, we certainly got the opportunity to look into it. Um, Upon further uh, investigation, we found that they had heard some of the things that we said at the battlefield, and uh, one of their historians had followed us around, apparently, and also, we, we do a number of different things at most battlefields. We have, uh, we used to do little reenactments, uh, with wooden guns and let the children, you know, pretend and do, diff- we do different things. We have relay races and stuff like that. Uh, at that particular place, uh, we actually didn't do that, but, our President Kevin Turley uh, had some of his grandchildren with him, and he carried a British flag and they were chasing him around with wooden guns and So we were accused of conducting a war reenactment on the battlefield, which they said was also illegal, and that we needed to appear in court to pay a uh, to to admit our guilt and to pay a three hundred dollar fine and so uh, Kevin in December of 2015. So it was the same year, a few months after we had been there, uh, maybe six months later, uh, was our court appearance. Um, Mr. Turley showed up at the court to find out what all the hoo-ha was about. And the only ones at the court was the attorney for the National Park Service and the judge. And the judge asked if we, uh, had an attorney and Kevin said no. Uh, we, we pled innocent uh, of the charges, but we wanted to investigate exactly what the charges meant, uh, by illegal guiding because there is no statutory law about teaching on a, um, a national historic site. Uh, and we've discovered that the National Park Service really doesn't have uh, policies regarding interpretation, but what the policies they have are you're not allowed to do metal detecting or relic hunting on a National Park Service property. Uh, you go to prison for a long time if you do that. You're not allowed to um, set up a business at the park uh you're like not a lemonade
1: to, stand you're not allowed to have a lemonade stand at a national no party. nothing nothing
0: oh, okay. that's nothing that's gonna bring you income
1: okay because
0: uh that's what they're there for, and they have their own guides, their own docents their own uh park service historians, and they're the ones who are tasked with interpreting the site uh to the public and so they don't they don't like uh what they would consider competition from other historians or people outside their uh their approved group right uh, so let me just
1: stop you for a second i remember yeah. as i was reading the account that at one place um your group was told that they were going to separate the children from the parents and the children were going to get their own tour I know that wasn 't received well by you or the parents, no. but what was their rationale for that
0: uh, i don 't know what their ration, uh, what their rationale really is that was at Fort Sumter in South Carolina. That has not happened since um, that that happened one time there, and it happened also at the at Mont- at uh, Montpelier, the home of president james Madison um, We got off the bus and they said, uh, all the children over here, all the parents over there, uh, we're going to take your children and we're going to teach them what they need to know. Wow. And they they did the same thing at Fort Sumter. And we said, uh, no, we don't work that way. The parents all stay with the parent; The children stay with the parents and we operate as families. And they said, no, um, we know what they need to know and you don't. Wow. Well, we refused and dug in and they, they, they let us go our way and, and, uh, do our thing. But, uh, at Montpelier, they divided us up into groups. And Montpelier, I believe, is either run by a private association or is a state site. I don't believe it's, um, National Park Service. I'm not sure. Okay. Now, but, um, anyway, they, they divided the families up so they could take smaller groups, but they did not divide the families themselves, separate them from their children. But their attitude was, we're the experts, and we know what they children need to know, and you don't. And we don't want you there while we do it. And this that, would, that particular episode was probably 15 years ago.
1: I see. So I have a question. Let's say, and I'm sure it's happened, when you submit to, okay, we'll go with your docent, and the docent says something that's inaccurate from a historical point of view, and you wanted to add in a biblical perspective, would you be silenced? Would you be told you're not allowed to talk? We're the ones who talk?
0: Uh, Normally, the uh, docents will allow uh, you to ask questions. Okay. Um, But normally, also, they will not turn the floor over to you uh, as an expert or to add something that they didn't know. I say that's normally, that's not 100% of the case, but uh, just about. And so we're not allowed to guide at, in certain places. But like battlefields, uh, we've always been allowed to guide. And most historic homes, even museums, um, we're normally allowed to guide in museums too but some of them absolutely not. And we found out that uh, each national park superintendent is somewhat of a law unto himself. They can make up whatever rules they want for their park. And that's what happened in New Orleans uh, from our perspective is that the administrator of the park decided that uh, we were not telling the story the way it needed to be told uh, and that we were we were some rogue group that was not going to uh, conform to their narrative. And one of the interesting things about that, Andrea, you know, if you want to fast forward to the end, uh, they ended up dropping 364 days later, they dropped the, the lawsuit because we ended up with one of the top flight uh, law firms in New Orleans who was, uh, has, um, I think it's a Christian law firm and they took us on pro bono and went after the National Park Service. And the, the, the end was that they were going to be publicly embarrassed. The Park Service was, um, they were going to not just lose, but they were going to be, um, objects of ridicule in the end. And so they, uh, they ended up dropping the case. And during that year, uh, we received a call from another national park from a lawyer of one of the national parks that we frequent. And he said, the entire national park service is watching your case. Wow. Um, the, the, you're the first ones that have been chosen uh, to be, you know, held up as an example of people who are uh, trying to communicate things outside of the approval of the government. And they chose you uh, to be the kind of the opening round of that or the guinea pigs for that. He said, and the whole park service is watching to see what happens.
1: So let me ask you a question. Most people, okay, would say, wow, being a park ranger, what a great job. And they're probably really nice people. and, And maybe people have encountered very friendly people. Is it a new thing that there is a narrative that is approved? I mean, we're used to it in education. We're used to it in media. Is this a relatively new thing, or has it been growing all along?
0: I think it's been uh, kind of growing over the years. It it seems to me, just from my experience, that it suddenly was accelerated uh, during the Obama administration. He chose a new head of the National Park Service, uh, one that was going to, uh, as they said, search out and find 500 LGBTQ sites to add to the National Park Service uh, historic sites uh, and change the narrative that's been going on. And I, I saw it starting to happen in Civil War battlefields. Uh, I know that they got the word at, at Civil War battlefields. That from now on, you just, you need to talk about slavery, 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 slavery. And you need, you need to downplay, uh, the Confederates and the South, et cetera. And I saw that, you know, coming over the years, a little bit here, a little bit there. And then I think it accelerated tremendously during the Obama administration. Um, a a whole new narrative. Well, what I was going to say, you know, in terms of an answer to your question, Um, The New Orleans case is a good example uh, of that. Now, they've always been, the docents have always been given their script. And there hasn't been, you know, much dissent regarding what the script is. Uh, How different could their interpretation be really from ours when it came to studying the Battle of New Orleans? Uh, For me, I talk about Andrew Jackson and how... Uh, in God's providence, this particular, uh, battle happened the way it did and a, an overwhelming American victory, a, almost miraculous. Historians down through the ages have all said that this, this whole battle was somewhat of a miracle, um, given the, the ability of the British troops and the experience of their commanders and all that stuff and the amateur nature of the Americans and all of that. And you put it all together and, Americans shouldn't have won, and they did. And it vaulted. Eventually, it, it well, it made Andrew Jackson a national figure, mm-hmm. it made him a national hero. In fact, from that point on, a lot of people just called him the hero, and everybody knew what they were talking about. Andrew Jackson. And so, I mentioned that in the providence of God, this this battle launched the career of Andrew Jackson, and he eventually became president of the United States. So things like that, just, uh, he who notes providences will have providences to note. And, uh, and that's one of them from that battle. And then I talk about the, the actual the tactical aspects of the battle, um, who was where and what kind of weapons they carried. And, uh, it's kind of the, the ebb and flow of the combat. I'm a military historian and, um, that, that sort of thing. So our president, uh, Kevin Turley, Slipped in with a, another group that came to visit the battlefield. Uh, the battlefield is right on a levee and a big paddle wheel steamer um, pulled up to the levee and tourists came piling out of the boat. And the NPS uh, sent their, one of their docents, um, almost all of whom are female, um, just as an aside. And th- one of them rushed up to the, the tourist boat and took the tourists down to the battlefield. And Kevin slipped in with the tourists to hear what the interpretation of that battle is all about, how different it is from what we say. And the docent began, or the guide, uh, in, in uniformed guide and historian, presumably, she began by apologizing to the group on behalf of the National Park Service that many years ago there were slave cabins near that battlefield and the National Park Service tore them down. And she wanted to apologize on behalf of the National Park Service for destroying such valuable uh, historic property that's so important uh, to the interpretation of the battlefield today. And then she went on to say that this battle was important because there were women in the ranks and this was the first time that women were allowed to take up arms and defend uh, the nation on a, in a battle. Well, Just about every single thing that she said uh, about that wasn't true. But it went on to become a sort of a pseudo-feminist rant uh, wow. about women being liberated and the battle having uh, importance to women's history and that kind of stuff. And sure enough, it's very different from what we teach when we go to that battlefield.
1: And, and it was a battlefield, so I guess it would make sense to talk about the battle. What did she frame as the reason for the battle?
0: Well, she uh, she eventually mentioned a few of the reasons that the, the two armies had come together there, that it was the War of 1812 and that Britain wanted to capture New Orleans for strategic reasons, uh, and that uh, Andrew Jackson was handy, uh, and so he was sent there to defend the city. Uh, but the emphasis was really on the diversity of the American army. Um, there were pirates in the ranks. In fact, they contributed a great deal to the victory. Uh, Jean Lafitte and his crew uh, were part of the battle. Uh There were free blacks, there were um slaves, there were French French people. Uh, the diversity was what it was all about. And that's the uh that's the American way. And uh, that was sort of the the importance of the battle
1: for her. I see. So a lot of people who want to make their vacations, historical tours, etc. If they're blank slates, or so to speak, they've just know nothing about this battle or any other battle, then this is what they think it was about. So this, from your perspective, is a reinterpretation of American history, kind of woke version.
0: Oh, sure. Uh, and that was, uh, well, that was six years ago now. Um, our case was settled in 2016 we haven't had any problems since then or any questioning what we do or any resistance or pushback uh and part of that i think is the fact that uh, in the interim between our being charged and our being and the case being dropped uh donald trump was elected president and they got a new director of the national park um in that in that period i see I, I think that I think that uh, things probably to some extent were put on hold uh, for four years. Um, in other aspects, not so much. Um, they've uh, during the Obama administration, they had selected a number of college professors to track down all the LGBTQ sites, historic sites that would be important. Um, find Find out, what important people, uh, in American history were, um, sodomites and let's elevate them, uh, and, and the places where they uh lived and, and their significance can be uh recognized by the national park service and the big yellow buses can pull up and, and learn about the freedom and diversity, uh, of America. And, uh, They have, I think that just continued within the bureaucracy of the National Park. I see. Because now there are just plenty of uh, LBGTQ sites that are recognized across the country and are promoted by the National Park Service. They have brochures on a whole host of things. And most, well, I don't know how many, whether it's many or most, but some of the ones that i've investigated are totally spurious and there is no there is no evidence or no proof of their of their interpretation uh, of the individuals especially i see um, so
1: what do you think about the fact that so many statues were um vandalized and destroyed and it was like people like you know Christopher Columbus and Robert E Lee and would you think that was um and the reason that so little was done about it is part of this whole emphasis to rewrite American history and get rid of evidences that at one point people liked Christopher Columbus
0: oh uh, it, it, I think certainly andrea that's that's the practical application of Uh, the philosophy and the theology really behind, uh, Black Lives Matter and, um, some of the other uh, radical reinterpreters of American history. Uh, it's, it's really nothing new in history. Uh, the Romans, the Romans had a policy called Domnatio Memoriae, uh, to, uh, damn the memory of heroes of the past that have fallen out of favor with the current regime and they need to be erased from history. And oh, we see it, <laughs> you know, we see it writ large in George Orwell's 1984, you know, he's working for the Ministry of Truth and their their purpose is to rewrite the past and completely obliterate uh, those who have become non-persons uh, declared so by the government. Uh, and I I think we see something similar happening today uh, in our own country, it, it it begins with it begins with rewriting the textbooks and downplaying certain individuals and bringing others to the fore. I know in some modern history textbooks on the chapter, for instance, on the war between the states, Robert E. Lee is barely mentioned. Uh, Abraham Lincoln has pages and pages. And the only thing that they talk about is uh, is slavery. So, um, the textbooks have been rewritten from a totally different perspective. Uh, and there's the gradual elimination. I mean, even, um, George Washington only got a paragraph in one of the high school textbooks I saw on American history. Um, wow. Martin Luther King got an entire chapter. So really history begins in like 1954 now and everything prior to that is racist and, and, irrelevant and demonstrates nothing but white supremacy. So all, those are all fair fair game uh, for the writers of history and it's subsidized by big business and promoted by federal government, uh, local local and state too uh, in many places. So yes, there's a, a an attempt to and, and I'm pretty sure Rush Dooney would have said, it's It's part of the war against god, right the, you know the war against history that's been going on since since the beginning uh, and has broken out in the open uh, in our own country with the attempted destruction of Western civilization and even the idea of it
1: mm-hmm. um, so as a historian, I'm sure you have knowledge and probably a opinion on this. Teddy Roosevelt was the big proponent of national parks, correct?
0: Yes. Uh-huh. He was really you, the beginning of it.
1: Yeah. Do you think his thrust on this was a statist thrust or was it more that he was an outdoorsman and he thought this would be good for people? Because for the federal government to own such a vast amount of land and then can tell you what you can and cannot say on this land... Um, seems to be contrary to what our framers would have thought appropriate. So do you have any comments on Teddy Roosevelt in this regard? Well,
0: I'm a great admirer of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, but there are aspects to his political theories, political theory and the way he worked it out that, um, in fact, I might not even have voted for him (laughs) at that time, but um, there are aspects of his of his, uh, expansion of the power of the presidency that I think went outside the constitutional boundaries established by the founders. Uh, I know that he's, he's in huge disfavor with libertarians. Uh, and he's accused of, you know, being a bully and, and a progressive. And, um, and indeed he was a progressive in the early stages of, of that particular movement and part of that really was his i think the second thing that you said about it, it was more consistent with how he thought that he was an outdoorsman and he wanted everybody to share in his love of the creation and he wanted the federal government to preserve the things that he loved for other Americans to appreciate and enjoy too
1: yeah
0: uh, i i don't think it was self-consciously saying the government has to control all of this land um, or or it'll be destroyed. Although there is some of that, but not to the extent that it would be today. Um, I see. I see. So, So,
1: I mean, sometimes people will frame the argument that we're going to preserve nature and then those people who don't like what the current regime or the current bureaucracy really is promoting – hate the environment, but that couldn't be further from the truth. It it doesn't have to be the either or that's often framed. Correct. Right.
0: I agree. I agree. It doesn't have to be the either or. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt, certainly he he understood that. And he he understood similar things in politics too. Uh, Although, you know, he's, uh, he's somewhat enigmatic, you know, when he was out West and, was traveling to these wonderful places and appreciating them and doing his, his naturalist studies. Uh, in his saddlebags, he had two books that he carried with him when he rode out. In one saddlebag, he had the Bible, which he loved and appreciated and read, uh, and talked about the creation. And in the other saddlebag, he had on the origin of the species. Oh my. By, by Charles Darwin. Which it was underlined and annotated and he read it like he did the Bible. Um, so, so he's somewhat, he can be a, a pretty enigmatic or
1: schizophrenic uh, when you look at it.
0: Yeah. Or schizophrenic <laughs> because he, he believes both creation and evolutionary theory as Darwin expressed it. So in some ways, he was a, you know, he was a man of his day intellectually and educationally uh, as he you know, it, it was science, you know, the God of, the God of humanism.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and and he was a scientist and he, you know, appreciated the world and in, uh, in that way. And his whole life, he'd been a naturalist. And if he hadn't been president, he said he wanted, you know, he would like to have been a naturalist. Uh, but at the same time, he read the scriptures and appreciated creation and the fact that God created the universe and, and all of that. So. I see. Uh, schizophrenic, enigmatic. Uh, <laughs> he's he probably represents a lot of Americans uh, in that day.
1: Yes, and unfortunately, the legacy of that thought going down through you know the 20th century and now into the 21st century. So let me ask you this: um, It would be easy to be discouraged because our public school system still promotes lies. Even when we have a change of person in the state house or in the White House, we still have this entrenched bureaucracy. Is it your opinion that the only way we are going to be able to prevail in this is to know our history and not rely on the sanitized or the changed? In other words, that we continue to promote a providential view of history and organizations like yours, and, and you're not the only organization that does this, right? That people really right. need to support, whether it's the court case that you were up against, or even when you're making a decision, what you're going to do with your dollars for vacation to support groups and oh, organizations yes. like you.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, one of our slogans is, vac- if you want a vacation with purpose, um, look and see what we do and where we go and the grand time that we have. And so really Christians educating, starting with their children, educating their children properly, uh, so that the next generation will, will be willing to take a stand where they have to take a stand, uh, even though it's going to be costly. So starting with our own children and grandchildren now for me, I've 23 grandchildren so far. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, we want them, we want them to be in the same place that we are in terms of understanding of truth the application of scripture to all of life um the importance of god's law and and all of those things and it, for christian families that's that's really where it starts and and needs to be promoted but in the larger sense where we have opportunity to do more than that those of us who have been put in positions to do that uh, need to do that you know i get i get invited to speak to civic groups uh from time to time and at universities uh, and I, I don't back off on any of my presuppositions um, and, and I always start with <laughs> the historicity of Genesis and the importance of understanding who God is and who man is and sin and redemption and all of those things that we know are absolutely true. Most people think that history is a result of a, or a product of chance evolution and I'd say 99% of the professional historians believe that. Um I can, you know, I, <laughs> I saw it in the academic world and it now it's, it works itself out at places like the National Park Service. There is no national park like the ones out west in particular that are not interpreted based on an evolutionary presuppositional teaching basis. I mean I 100% and bring, we need to understand that and right. we need to tell people different, uh, differently.
1: You bring up the Garden of Eden, you know. Satan was a t- approved tour guide who was going to tell them, no, 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 you surely won't die. I, so uh, I, the, the original... He, he definitely rewrote the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. are there Bill Potters being grown? Do you see young people who will become... Natural heirs to what you do and continue to advocate what you advocate. Cause you obviously have lots of people who will come, um, participate in your tours. Um, are you hopeful that your efforts will continue when the Lord decides to take you home?
0: Oh, that's, that's one of our greatest hopes. And we're always on the lookout. Uh, we bring, we bring young, young men in, uh, from time to time to help us at different places that, have enough training or expertise in a particular area. Uh, so we've, we've been trying to, we've been trying to encourage, um, guys that, that have that kind of interest. Uh, and it is one of the, one of the problems that needs to be solved. And that is, you know, reproducing ourselves in terms of our, uh, our theology and our, our faith. On having, there are plenty of young people who are interested in history and are voracious readers and are autodidacts when it comes to learning American history, especially, but other areas of history too. And they need to be, they need to be brought along, um, so that, uh, you know, we'll, we will have the replacements when the casualties occur. Uh, and that is one of our, that's one of our main concerns. And we're always on the lookout for those uh, kinds of young people. My own experience, I've a lot of academic training. And, you know, my, when I was an undergraduate in college, uh, I was taught four years um, Ventilian Presuppositional Apologetics and Red Rush Dooney uh, every week uh, for about three years as a college student. Uh, and I went right out into a public school and started repeating all of that and applying it, um, didn't make me the most popular guy in the teacher's room, but, <laughs> uh, since then, it's been almost exclusively, well, other than, you know, my, um, academic education, it, it, my teaching has been mostly Christian schools, Christian families, et cetera. And, um, uh, it's because of my educational experience that I can do what I do. And a lot of Christian young people are not going to get the, the kind of training that I got from non-Christians, um, in the university setting. But I was so well grounded that I was able to do that on the graduate level.
1: Right. So that brings up a point that I'd like you to comment on. You know, we still have this fallacy prevailing that you have to go to college. And I believe that there is a lot of um, information and a lot of experience that needs to be shared in a much more mature fashion than you might see in the typical grammar high school. However, if you're not grounded, I mean, when you describe what that three years was like for you, that meant that when you went to university, you could say, no, that's not biblical. No, that's, that's almost right, but almost isn't good enough here because, you know, that kind of stuff. Do you think that, um, organizations like yours or companion organizations that we should be looking at creating, subsidizing and having Christian parents have their children intern and, and make a dedicated effort that we're going to be the historians of the future? Um, much like Dr. Rushduni was able to be an expert witness in, in court cases because he had such a wealth of knowledge, the way we're going to do it isn't by sending them to traditional, secular, or even pablum-like Christian colleges, correct?
0: Right. No, I, I agree. I mean, that's uh, it's silly that people think that every, every high school student needs to go to college. Uh, 95% of them need to stay home. Uh, and work and learn in other ways. Just, uh, as a side note, um, I know that, uh, Liberty University here in Virginia, in Lynchburg, uh, has new graduate programs in history. And one of the things that they're training, uh, young people for is being, being guides, uh, national parks, national parks and being docents at historic sites. That's part of the program for uh-huh. young people who are interested in history. And of course, theres that's a school that got in early on the distance learning, and you can get all your degrees without ever setting foot on campus uh, online. So there are a lot of tools that Christian young people have at, at their fingertips to learn and add to their Education as well as experience. And I think that's best route to go today. I, I don't recommend college just about anybody.
1: Right. And our Calcedon's good friend, Roger Schultz, has a lot to do with the history. I was going to mention Roger. He's the guy. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> that's his program. Yep. Yeah. Very good. And All right. Wonderful. Bill, thanks for um, sharing your experiences, your perspective, and your hope because you're not a you're not discouraged. You're, you're no, someone who's hopeful.
0: Not at all. Not at all. Uh, we know that we win in the end. I mean, we the victory is already already there, and we just have to be faithful. That's God calls us to be faithful in our own time and place, and the results are His, and we know what the end result is. So there's no reason to be pessimistic about
1: it. Very good. I imagine there are going to be people who hear this that say, I'd like to go on one of these tours or I'd like to know about this guy more. Give your contact information and the website address again uh, so that now people can get out their pencils or their tablets or whatever they'll record this on and um, give the information. It's, uh,
0: our website is www.landmarkevents.org. And everything is there all the information on our tours, their costs, their, their length. Um, We, I publish an article every week uh, called historical highlights and we have uh, a a number of resources available um, but it's all off that website and you can see the tours that we do, how they work, what they cost and how you can become a part of it.
1: So if people Uh, are interested not so much or in the tours, but also conversing with you, getting you as a speaker, um, doing homeschool seminars, what, whatever. Yes. Is, there, is that through that website as well, or is there a direct way to contact you?
0: Uh, there's a direct way to contact me. Anyone can contact me anytime uh, if they have questions. Uh, I get lots of questions about books because I read so much and have a significant library. Um, and my... Um, email address is, uh, Bill at gmail And uh, people can contact me anytime because, uh, I, I speak at father and son retreats and homeschool conventions. Uh, I was out West last year for a big homeschool convention up in Oregon. Um, uh, other, other venues too. I, I, for a Reformation weekend, I, I speak at a, uh, to a, a number of Christian families in Michigan every year. They have me come back, talk about the Reformation, second Reformation in Scotland, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm available for all, all kinds of uh, groups and uh, events.
1: So, so, So for parents who are listening or grandparents, if you're growing one of these future Bill Potters, he'll have a different name, but he will have the, or she will have the thrust to go ahead and, present an accurate history in terms of the Bible, because if it's not biblical, then it's not an accurate history. I, I would encourage you to go to one of these tour events, or at least read all you can that's on that website. So you get a sense of um a projected educational future for your children, because we've got to stop giving our brightest and our best to the enemy to tell them that, Particular battle was all about women. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Bill. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks, Andrea. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be on your show.
1: All right. Listeners, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you get a hold of us, and we look forward to talking with you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.